Pieces. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. So I just asked Kathy Lundeen if she was ready to start, and she said, you betcha, which is very Minnesotan, which is, is where she is right now. <laughs> I think they actually test us um, on a randomized basis, like say you betcha, and then you have to pass or you have to leave. <laughs> you have to, you have to. And another word that continues, because I'm from Minnesota, as you know. Yes. Another word that continues to stay in my repertoire is oofta. Oofta, wow. Which is that equivalent of, I think of a, well, I don't know if it's equivalent to oi. That's it. It kind of is. Um, I have heard many Minnesotans actually use oofta in a sentence, like in a real um, exclamatory way. And I would substitute oi vey in those spaces. Um, So, yeah, I think. I think they're pretty analogous. <laughs> and the other one that, that that is so fun is is that you can add then, there, or here to the end of any sentence. And so it's it's so do you want to go to the store then? Right. <laughs> <laughs> or once. Sometimes you can add once at the end of a sentence as well. Kathy Kathy Lundeen, you are a professor. I am. And you are a editor, co-editor in chief of the Journal of Management Education. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation today because as I understand it, you are you are passing the baton as editor-in-chief, correct? Co-editor-in-chief, I should say. We are. Um, and it's been such a long time. And, and um, one of the things that I've been working on lately, sort of working on as a uh, an ongoing thing, is what will I be professionally when editor is not part of my role or my title. And it's really an interesting thing to reflect on because it's been so long since I've been doing this kind of work, but we do have new editors. They are wonderful people. Um, Jen Lee at Nazareth college and Marissa Edwards at the university of Queensland uh, in Australia. We'll be taking over. That's wonderful. Yes. Well, and, and we were planning this episode I really wanted to explore your wisdom, your wisdom of what you've observed, because you you just said before we started, it's been about 20 years that you've been intimately involved as an associate editor, as an editor, co-editor in chief, correct? Yes. It's it's hard to even say that out loud and have it be true. Uh, but I started at the end of 2001, about end of 2001, beginning of 2002, as I was just I wasn't even on my first job yet after doctoral studies and um, had been involved with the OBTC, what used to be the OBTC. Now it's the conference that the MOBTS puts on. And Dale Fitzgibbons um, at Illinois State was the editor-in-chief and asked me to come aboard. Uh, so it seems like forever. And, and yet it also seems impossible that it was 20 years. Yeah. yeah. What do we need to be thinking about? What have you observed? What are some themes you've seen? I'd love to hear it because I'm, I'm, I know there are a number of listeners who are in this space and want to know what you see. Oh, that's a, that's a really, that's a big question, Scott <laughs> Allen. You know, in thinking about what would be helpful, helpful for listeners to know and sort of what your goals are for the podcast, which um, I was listening to some of your episodes. This is awesome. I love this. I love your podcast. There, there are some things I think that I've seen change over the trajectory of 20-ish years. And I think prob- probably one of the biggest things that I've come to realize is that the whole publishing enterprise is a conversation. Huh. You know, thinking about your scholarship, not not in these sort of atomistic chunks, but as part of a larger conversation that 
both precedes what you're doing and will also generate more work and more conversation and more wisdom and more practical outcomes. And I think when I think about the most successful authors, meaning those who can move um, relatively, relatively seamlessly or relatively easily through the, the process from idea generation all the way through to published product, whatever that is, article, book, yes. blog, even in some, in some fields. Um, I think that they understand that, that they're entering into a space where there are lots of people having a similar conversation. And so the analogy that I use when I'm doing a lot of outreach is merging into traffic. Okay. So, and I grew up in Chicago, as you know. And so when you're merging onto the Dan Ryan, there are lots of other people you have to take into account, right? Like (laughs) nobody's blindly merging onto the Kennedy. Um, And so all those other cars are people having not the same conversations, but similar conversations, you know, and how does your work contribute to merging into that traffic of a conversation? And so I, and I think it also helps take some of the pressure off in a lot of ways because there is this community within a topic and, and this is helpful, hopefully for authors, you don't have to make the argument that you're the first one to ever do whatever it is you think you're doing. Cause I promise you, you're not. (laughs) And, and you don't have to make that argument. Yeah. And so, so I've learned that. And, and I think that understanding that you're part of a whole, yeah. part of an active and engaged and vibrant conversation is something that I did not, I didn't think earlier. And I guess I've seen more of that because there's just more work out there. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're at the hub of these conversations. So that has to be a really, really interesting space from which to view the scholarship, you uh, to to stick with the traffic analogy. Sometimes you're a little bit of a a, a traffic. <laughs> We're the traffic woman. cops. Yes, <laughs> yes, we are. And taking that gatekeeper role really seriously is something that we've normed. I think all of us in the editorial space, certainly at JME, but also within the larger so the scholarship of teaching and learning SOTL community. We take that really seriously because these are consequential decisions. You know, we, we meaning those of us like management learning, AMLE, Decision Sciences Journal of Innovative Education, Jamie, you know, we're all in that sub 15% acceptance rate space. Yeah. And it matters when people get a publication or, or don't get a publication. And so I think that engaging with the ethical piece of that traffic cop role has been has been something that's been uh, non-negotiable for us, and and I think you know by and large I think authors respect decisions if they feel the process was fair. Yeah. And over twenty years, you know, there have been a handful, of course, of authors who have pushed back, but fewer than you would think. And and I think that's the win. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love this this an analogy of merging into traffic. And and so what would you recommend for authors? I mean they have to become pretty steeped in do they have to become steeped in the conversation within just JME, Journal of Management Education, or do you do they need to be well versed across the journals about that conversation? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's that's about the $10 million contribution positioning question. And the answer, it's not a clean answer, Scott. I think I think the pre-work is thinking very strategically about where in that traffic you want to merge. What is your contribution and who's your audience? Yeah. Um, And so when we do outreach sessions, for example, I can spend a whole afternoon on that positioning question. Yeah. You know, who if you if you say for example let's talk about assessment everybody's favorite topic is assessment your contribution is going to look very different your manuscript is going to look very different if you're talking to faculty or if you're talking to administrators or you're talking to an accreditor yep and so or you're talking to students 
you know, if you want to have that conversation, we sometimes do that with students. And so figuring out not only what your topic is, but what you actually want to say to a, to a specific audience helps focus that. So to go back to your question about literature, it depends on who you're talking to. And, and it goes back to something I said earlier, like you don't have to say we're the first ones to do this yeah. uh, because across disciplines, you're not even maybe in our literature. So when I was working in the management, spirituality and religion space um, and was working as an editor at JMSR and um, would get manuscripts that would say, you know, this is the first time anybody's looked at this. That may be the case in org studies. It is certainly not the case in, for example, the helping professions. And I would recommend like it almost doesn't even matter what your topic is. Look in the nursing literature. The nurses are, they are absolutely on the front edge of like everything, education, um, organizational engagement, mm-hmm. um, working in very fraught environments, client and patient engagement. They have done it. And um, I find design assessments, all of that, right? all of that evidence-based work, all of it. The yep. nursing literature is, is, it's just one of my go-tos now. Um, <laughs> there's, so, you know, the research methods are, are so interesting. So finding those places in different disciplines that are, that are having similar conversations can be some of the most interesting work I see now. Yeah. So what else? What else have you observed? What else have you? What other wisdom can you share with us? I, I love the the merging into traffic. Right? Doesn't can, that make so much sense? Yes. Let's see if you can weave this next suggestion into that analogy. Oh, I here, Kathy Lundine. Well, let's see. Um, here's the other thing that that I have learned is that submitting submitting work to a journal or submitting work to any peer reviewed outlet is an emotionally significant event for most people. Yes. It's right. Their career. It's their career for, for many, right? It, 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 it is. I mean, it's, it's the currency of our profession, yep. right? Um, and it's also, it, it also can be a conflation of the self. Mm. And so we're very careful, for example, to use language in our decision letters that talks about the manuscript or the research or the conclusions versus you. And so when I hear people, when I hear authors say, you know, I got rejected Mm. or, you know, we got rejected after uh, revision three, I, when I can, I stop them and say, it wasn't you. It was your, it was your manuscript. And so helping authors find ways of separating themselves from their work is really important. And I'm, I'm totally convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that the difference between people who are very well published and people who are not well published is this ability to separate themselves from them work, from their work. And so it's a yes and, you know, we've been very careful about making sure we help authors make that separation with the language we use. Yep. And we also recognize lots of people do, do make that, that connection. And how do we help people let it go? You know, we, we want your best manuscript. At some point you have to let it go. Yeah. And the people who are successful are the ones who can send it out and then can actually see and engage with review comments. Uh, um, I know people who will not send their work out, not because they don't think it's good or their idea is unique. They simply can't, they, they can't do the reviews. Really? They can't do the critical reviews. And so one of my mentors in graduate school, I actually didn't realize this was such a thing until, I mean, it's embarrassing, about 10 years in to the editing kind of gig because Jerry didn't even sort of give me time to be upset. Yeah. He, one of my first publications was in JME um, very early in my doctoral studies. 
And he made me do the response to reviewer letter. And he made me look at the reviews and he made me organize them and figure out what we were going to do. And I had never seen one of those documents before. I had no idea. So, and there was no time to be upset. Like he wouldn't, he didn't even allow for the possibility of being upset. So you, you had said a couple moments ago that the most successful scholars in some ways don't take that feedback personally. They don't, yes. they don't get hung up on that. They literally kind of logically, I just said it, view it as the next step in the process. Yes. And, you know, they'll push back where they feel strongly, but then they'll, and ultimately the paper will likely be much better, but. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And they don't, they're, they have the confidence that their work matters and they also engage with that conversation. And so the conversation is not only among scholars and people doing that work, there's a conversation with editors and reviewers. And so when we do outreach, and I've said that, we do a lot of outreach for this very reason, there is a conversation started in sort of the cover letter. And how do you see your work? How does your work contribute? So that's the beginning, the initial conversation with, with editors. Yeah. And then as you go, as you well know, you know, the response to reviewer letter is the conversation with the reviewers and the editors. And how are you experiencing their feedback? What makes sense to change? What are you, what are you not going to change and help have that conversation? And, and so it's part of sort of a publishing enterprise that has become more important I think as time has gone on. So um, the the thing about having the confidence and being able to uh, see it as just that logical next step, I I do think there. That's a that's just a key difference. I just yeah. I think and similar. I mean, we've talked before you and I about teaching evaluations. And I think it's quite similar where perhaps you know colleagues, I know I do, that can't can't engage with the feedback yeah. that students give them even if it's functional. They they have to anchor on the negative stuff. Yep. And I think teachers who develop really really quite well are the ones that can separate out, you know, that's not a value, that's a personal comment or positive or negative, that's a personal comment. Here's the stuff I need. Objectively, I once had had a student say he has an ego the size of Texas. Now that's a pretty big state, Kathy. <laughs> that's a big state. And that's for a big someone state. Who spent a lot of his life with a lower than self self esteem. You know, that's <laughs> that was kind of shocking. But yes. I, had to, I had to engage in some conversations with folks about, okay, so what does this feedback mean so that I can understand it? Or what could I be doing that is giving this impression? Because that, that isn't how I perceive myself. But obviously, one person's experiencing me that way. And how do I manage that? How do I manage that impression? If, if, and, and so it's interesting because yeah. I had to go on this little self-exploration. I, it would have been easy for me to say, oh, I know exactly who that was. It was Jimmy, right? Right, but- right, right. And, I, and kudos to you for doing that. Because I think a comment like that, that sort of global comment that doesn't give you any actionable kinds of next steps. I think something like that would be easy to dismiss, but you're exactly like your point is exactly helping this conversation in that it's what you do with it. You know, there's something going on where a student made a comment like that and you decided to explore that. That's good on you. And then it can become something, I must be doing something to at least one student to give off this impression, how can I engage with that differently? And, you know, again, kudos to you, because I think that would be an easy one to dismiss. Well, it's easy to do with reviewers as well. So I've had co-authors say, well, they don't get it. Well, Mm. okay, maybe they don't, but did, did I communicate it well? If, if I communicated it better, so it's data, it's, it's data. And, and yeah. I think sometimes the data, again, like we discussed, you end up just disagreeing with it. And, and I think, but be intentional about that, right? What do I need to own in this person not getting it? Because that's an important piece of the puzzle. It, 
It absolutely is. And probably one of the key takeaways, that was an excellent segue, thank you, (laughs) is in creating that response to reviewer letter, you don't have to change everything that the reviewers say, or even the editors say, although that's riskier. But that's part of the conversation. You have to say why. You have to engage with it. You can say in your head, reviewer number one doesn't seem to understand what we're doing. And that may be true. That actually may be true. Right. How can I reframe this both in the response document that, that the reviewer is going to read? I appreciate that you see this in the manuscript. What we actually meant to do was this. Yep. And then how do you make that change for clarity in the manuscript? Yep. And so what we want to do, and it, I think this goes back to some of the changes that I've seen over the years, we want to give authors more agency. Authors are not simply at the mercy of reviewers and editors. There is that conversation. Um, Where I see authors not be successful is when they don't engage and they ignore it. Um, And, you know, we, we are more than willing to have phone calls. You know, I've had a hundred phone calls with authors over the years that I don't really understand what the author, what the reviewer is saying, or I hear what you're saying. I just am not sure how to take that in the manuscript. And that's my happy place. Like with Jeannie Foray, who's my co-editor and I in our division of labor over the last (laughs) six ish years, um, I get the majority of manuscripts because working with authors to kind of find that gem, that's my happy place. And so it's that it's that conversation taking over ownership over what they're saying. What are some opportunities that you see that maybe there's some gaps that, that could be filled? One of the things that I've seen in, in a sort of unfortunate way is that as an industry, as a profession, we seem to be getting more isolated. Uh, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And, and I'm a Gen X person. We yep. wrote the book on free agency, you yep. know, like yep. we, yep. we have seen organizations do terrible things to people and we have no intention of being part of, um, of, of that. So I get the free agent thing and I think it's morphing into isolation because our business model in higher education has to change. And so I think, for example, I think that the decline, the dramatic decline of tenure, tenured positions, tenure track positions, and those are being replaced by long-term contracts or, you know, adjuncts or whatever. I think that has contributed um, hugely to the idea that even within institutions, there's less community. There are fewer people that are long-term engaged in the institution, there was that sort of informal mentoring role, you know, as a senior academic. And so, so many of our younger colleagues, our newer colleagues have to go it on their own. Yeah. And the infrastructure, even though it was informal and historical, it was still an infrastructure and they don't have that. And so they're trying to triage their need for community and their need for mentoring and their need for support external to the institution. And so people like us as editors, we're sort of taking up that role. Um, And people like you with podcasts like this and people in professional organizations are taking up that role. So I worry for our younger colleagues. I, it's a very different profession than the one that I came into. And I, that's not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, Harkening back to the salad days yeah. of of the academy, I think, you know, when I go to the academy and management meeting, and I, I'm a member of um, gender and diversity yep. in organizations GDO, it makes my heart sing when I go to anything that GDO puts on because the the sheer diversity of people in the academy versus what it was like 20 years ago, honestly, and and so I see these enormous steps forward in terms of who we're allowing in to the academy. And I mean that in a very deliberate way. And at the same time, the breakdown of these communitarian types of infrastructures worries me. A 
along with that, it's worrisome from an editorial perspective because so many more faculty in so many more institutions around the world are being forced to publish. Yeah. And so even if you're at a teaching-oriented institution whose mission is teaching-oriented, you have to publish. And so I, I, could, I could show you some of these emails. Scott, they're heartbreaking yeah. when I have to reject somebody's paper. Um, it, it has nothing to do with what we publish or they submit their entire dissertation, like 80 or 90,000 word dissertations. They'll oh, upload wow. the whole thing. And I have to reject that. And then I get emails from the authors like, I have to publish and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And so I think we have a mandate in our gatekeeper, in our editorial roles to help people learn how to do this. Like basic, how do you build an, an intellectual infrastructure? How do you start a research project? How do you publish from a dissertation or a large thesis? Um, they're getting no help. They're getting the pressure, but they're yeah. getting no help. There's some proxy for institutional community building that has to happen. Um, I, I, sat, I sat at dinner. This is at one of our conferences for Management and Organizational Behavior Teaching Society a couple of years ago. And, and I sat next to a gentleman from an R1 institution and the pressure he had and the, I think it might've been like an eight year clock or something of that <laughs> for, for listeners means that you are not tenured for eight years and the requirements to publish in these six journals. Right. Very narrow. Intense. Mm-hmm. And it was just, uh, I, it was, it was, it was a different, a different job than what I have. Right. Yes. Yes. And and I think you've been intentional about having that different job. Yes. The, the places we choose to work in it allow for a little bit more intentionality about the mix of activities and yes. the choices that you have. Yes. But what I'm seeing is that it's not our one institutions where one might expect that or one should uh, expect that. You're seeing it in other institutions now as well. Oh, yeah. These are, again, traditional like liberal arts institutions, traditionally teaching-oriented um, very small institutions, institutions that had not had anybody published. They'd never been accredited. And now administrators are trying to ramp that up. Yep. And because publications are the currency of our field, yes. they see that as a way of gaining legitimacy. And, and so there is this enormous pressure on people who have, who have never published. And yeah. You had mentioned... And I'm I'm not going to get the phrasing correct, and it could be me just projecting my own my own bias. Well, you're the you're the king. You're the podcast <laughs> king. You get to do what you want, Scott. <laughs> so I, I often wonder if I had Trisha Griffith, the CEO of Progressive in class, the other night, and I often wonder if we were to share with her the latest copy of the Journal of Management, uh, w- would she, as a practitioner, find value in that work? That's a struggle sometimes. To go back to the nursing literature, they are they're close to the work. Yes. Right? Yes. They're they're so very, very though these scholars are literally in these institutions doing the work much of the time. Same thing with medical in 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 you know the medical education space and all of that, that research. So how do we address some of that where we have some of our some of our scholarship to your point? It, and I might be saying isolated in a different way than you meant, but I also believe at times that, mm. that we are becoming less and less relevant to the average in, in a McKinsey or a Deloitte or some of these mm. other institutions. In some ways, I had a gentleman from McKinsey speak, the head of global innovation, and they are now partnering with colleges of business and accountancy programs and offering education. So that's interesting. That's an interesting, mm. that's an interesting development, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so I heard you say two very, very interesting things. Well, you've said lots of interesting things, but... Um, so many interesting things. In, so many. And Kathy, my ego, like groundbreaking, incredible things. I'm, it's, it's growing outside <laughs> of Texas. You know, like your ego is, you're moving, (laughs) you're, you're, you're moving into Louisiana very quickly, right? Um, (laughs) I'm going to go in order 
okay. of what you said. The relevance thing, I promise you that in the nursing literature, the social work literature, the medical literature, the presidents of their professional associations are not writing essays lamenting the relevance gap that their scholars are are experiencing. And yet the presidents of the Academy of Management, if you look back at their essays that they get to write every year, that's the theme is how do we connect to industry? How do we, I think it was actually the theme, if not last year, which was a blur, the year before there was this, there's this practitioner research gap that has only gotten bigger. Yeah. And there's this hand wringing in those major journals like journal management. Um, they're, they're inexplicable to people in the field. They're inexplicable to people in our industry yeah. sometimes. And, and I think that's because they are methodological expositions hmm. without, frankly, anything interesting to say. Wow. Because that's what we reward. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the reason why Kerr's article on the folly mm-hmm. um, from AMJ in 1979 is the most cited one is because it's true every single day. And so when you have people rewarded, continuing to be rewarded for that kind of esoteric research that has no relevance because that's not part of the criteria. Yeah. That will continue. To me, it seems like an easy fix. You know, if you were to require a commentary, for example, from uh, McKinsey Global Innovation or the head of progressive insurance, like if you were required to include sort of a a relevance (laughs) checkmark from somebody in the field, all of that research would go away. Yeah. Or it would be reconfigured and be very interesting. And so, we're not going to solve for that. And yeah. I think those of us who experience that work as completely irrelevant to the field, uh, we tend to not do that work. Hmm. I think it's simply endemic to our reward structure. And yeah. until we get serious about that, you know, I, it always kills me to see when a president of the Academy of Management who's in one of those very R1 machines of publishing laments the fact that the work is not relevant when they have been rewarded for work that is not relevant. They're part of that system. So we're not going to solve for that there, which is why I think finding other literatures are um, is so interesting. But the second thing that you said about what I would call broadly the nature of credentialing, that's, that's a big thing. Like that is huge. Once colleges and universities like we've we've been the gatekeepers of this very important credential forever and people are chipping away at that as you well noted you know and once organizations that hire people are willing to accept like MOOC certificates or certificates from um all these micro masters programs yep. that are popping up or I had an training modules. I had an employer the other day say, I would rather hire, this was someone who's hiring for a marketing role. They said, I want them credentialed. And and basically they were naming, you know, Facebook, Google, I want them in Microsoft. I want them credentialed in these things. I'm not getting that from universities, but that was just an interesting observation that they said that, right? Well, that is, that is legitimacy in, in what he in this instance needed in the moment versus a four-year degree. So I think, so you see some of these things, you know, we want these micro-credentials that are very inexpensive. They're test-driven. Once organizations decide you can aggregate those and that's the proxy for your degree, like we're done. And I think we're, I think we're moving closer to that more quickly than a lot of people would want to know. But I also think organizations are are part of their own problem in that if you look at the 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 outcomes or the student skills or or competencies, I guess is a better word, yeah. from places like the National Association of Colleges and Employers. So NACE is yep. that right. So every year they send out this report. Here are the top 10 things that employers want. And it's 
it's things that we do in yeah. college. It's critical thinking, it's communication, right? It's, it's those soft skills. And yet we also get feedback just like the stuff that you got. They need to know how to use databases. They need to know how to use, to leverage these social media. They need Excel. My God, if I had a dollar for every time an employer said, your students don't know Excel well enough to hit the ground running. Yeah. That, those are community college things. Mm -hmm. Those are things that you can do on Who Knew It mm -hmm. or Coursera and get a certificate. And so they're a little conflicted themselves in the messages they, they give. And ultimately, they want everything. Yeah. And so that's not what we do. And I think it's a ruinous decision for colleges and universities to want to do everything. Mm -hmm. And I see a little bit of that now and strategically that's unsustainable and it's, it will be a disaster. Yeah. And so I would love to see to your, to your other comment, how can we partner? How can we take the things that, that are not training? They're actually education. Yeah. And let's keep that bright line between those two. How can we partner with some institution or organization or credentialing body like like SHRM, they have their own credential. How can we build a relationship with SHRM for our HR majors so that they come out dually credentialed? I see some places kind of doing that, but mostly on a graduate level. Yeah. So when we lose control over that key credential of the four-year degree, yeah, we're we're kind of done. And so I think the irony is, you know, and, and you had, you had asked before, um, as we were preparing for this, what are, what are cool topics? You know, what's new, what's, yeah. what's excellent. I would love to see work on that ah, creativity. Okay. How are you responding to these very separate, but ultimately mutually reinforcing types of learning outcomes that our students need? Yeah. How, What's cool? I mean, what's cool out there? How are you doing the credential thing? Yeah. How are you building capacity for your graduates? We just published a paper um, from a couple of authors from the University of Saskatchewan, and they have done this um, sort of a stealth approach. They have their MBA program, but then they also have this not required but student-driven skills opportunity. Huh. And it's very focused. Excel, how do you run a meeting, right? And they run these and it's student topic driven and they have executives and um, people in the field coming in. They are as well attended, if not more attended than their regular curricular classes. And so they didn't wait for the institution. And it's ultimately kind of almost all volunteer. And we can't have that be volunteer. It has to be embedded. But it's a great article about them just taking the bull by the horns and saying, this is what our graduates need. This yeah. is what our employers need. And so creativity like that, we have to do it. And we're in a pandemic under enormous financial stress. And that's not the greatest time for innovation in a lot of ways, because people are tired. People are tired. Yeah. What other, what other gaps do you see or what other opportunities do you see as, as spaces that are kind of ripe for people to explore? So I would say in thinking about this, I would love to see some work about data and not, not like how to analyze data, you know, what are ways to teach big data or whatever, but how are universities and colleges using data about students in programmatic way, like to determine programmatic decisions? Interesting. You know, how do we know, for example, about whether we should build this particular program reduce this particular program? At what level should it be? We have those data. Mm -hmm. We have all of those data. So I would love to see how um, either conceptually or, or in action, how are we harnessing this flood of data we have to make decisions within the institution? Yeah. I would love, to, I've seen very little work on that. Okay. Um, Data-driven data -driven decisions like that. The other thing that I would love to see is um, the, the limits of relationality. And that's, that's a kind of an umbrella thing. Like institutions like yours and mine, yeah. we're selling 
an experience. We're selling a relationship with students, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. certainly that's part of your marketing. That's part of your branding. That's why we have liberal arts institutions. The Jesuit model is all about that as I'm, uh, as a grad of a Jesuit school. So where does that end? I have seen some really interesting stuff from schools that assign, it's sort of like a grown-up buddy, like prior, you know, in the summer before kids even get there. Okay. This is a four-year-plus relationship. They stay with this student. They mentor this student. They okay. advise this student. They help them with mental health. They a- help them access resources. This is an intense, almost a parenting, like one-off, one degree of separation from a parent. And it appears to be very long-term. And they're harnessing staff and they're harnessing faculty. Really? To engage where, in these relationships? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Where does that end? Well, because close parenting, you know, this whole helicopter parent thing, they just want to move their son or daughter from the home into campus and have, an, have a point person. Yeah. Um, it's not healthy. I'm not saying it's healthy. I think it's actually terrible for students and there's research on that. But where does that end? Mm. You know, where does that forced forced and long-term and very intensive relationality end or what are the limits of that? Because we, I can't see that going well. And and then anything on a DEI, anything about diversity and how things are changing with the fact of diversity and not just ethnic diversity, life experience, first gen, um, veteran status. I haven't seen anything in a long time about how we're engaging our veterans. Um, And there are a lot of them. Low, lower socioeconomic status, English language learners, so domestic students who grow up in houses where English is not the first language, so they're toggling these identities and these value sets and these traditions. Um, we have such an enormously diverse student life experience out there, and I'm always interested in seeing how we're, how we're thinking and engaging them differently. To your point, whether it's the academy that's becoming more diverse or whether it's our student bodies, I think you're exactly right. Have we even touched the surface of that whole work? We haven't, have we? I I think some parts are better covered than others. I think the we've made inroads on Black students and some of the some of the ways that being a black person in the academy or as a student is different. I haven't seen really a lot again about veterans. I haven't seen as much as I would like about LGBTQ. I haven't seen as much as I would like about first gen. You know, first generation is such I mean that is that is a completely discontinuous life experience. You know, there's nothing about their life experience that's a smooth transition. And I was just re- I'm I'm done with fabulous book called Moving Up Without Losing Your Way by Jennifer Morton and she is a first generation she, she's Peruvian by birth and she talks about the ethical costs of upward mobility by getting a college degree. And by ethical cost, she means that when we see first-gen kids, we assume it's all like everybody at home's rooting for them. And yeah. like um, the movie. Yeah, like yeah. we've made it. When in fact, the costs in terms of community, in terms of family, in terms of prior value sets, all yeah. of those are degraded. And they have to live and work and study in this very liminal space it's an absolutely amazing book and it, it just came out. I think the copyright is 2019 and I would love to see more work about that experience and how we can engage that experience and be more alert to that. I'll put that in the show notes for sure. And, and let's transition there. So, so what else have you been reading or watching? I always love catching up with you about great blogs or film or what you're streaming or listening to. What's on your radar right now? Well, we, Jeannie and I, continue to add to our podcast series, Rockin' the Publication, which is oh. on the JME website. And it's, it's in the service, Scott, of what we were just talking about. It's really pretty generic, uh, real focused snippets. 
how can we help authors? How can we support authors in things that they have to do for any publishing? I love it. I love it. And, um, and digitizing that knowledge is just so wonderful. It's such a gift. It just is. We, it's really fun to do. It's a lot like this. Um, <laughs> yeah. We get together and record it and they're usually about 25 minutes and it's, they're very focused. Like here's, here's what we can do. And they've been, love it. we've been surprised. They've been downloaded a lot. <laughs> like they've been downloaded and listened to a lot. And so it. there is this need out there, which oh, is, yeah. which is huge. And you turned me on to the wait, but why yes. blog, which I enjoy reading. I, I think they're so creative and I yeah, love the, the graphics and I love the, the, the topics they tackle are, you know, they just, they're very engaging. They're very engaging. So I, I read that too. I read the conversation. So I read posts on the conversation. It's to your other point, it's translating academic research oh, okay. into a conversation. It, they're short and they have to be um, easily understood. Yeah. And so it's academics okay. translating their work for a wider audience. Great. Um, oh, I love that. So I love the conversation. I'm, let's see, what else am I, I'm writing a lot. Um, I'm about two thirds of the way through a book about engaged course design and assessment nice. um, with Charles Fornachari, my frequent collaborator, and then Nancy Nimi, who is, uh, who, who picked the very wrong, the worst time in the world to become a provost last year in the University of Maryland system. And so bless her heart. She's she's continuing to provost. It's uh, the worst job on campus, I think, right now. I was awarded. So as I prepare for my post-JME life, the, who am I if not an editor? To help make that transition, I made a proposal to the Fulbright Commission to do outreach in places without that tradition as it. a Fulbright specialist and was approved in April about... A week later, they stopped all programs. And so that's a, there's a three-year term for that once we start sending people overseas again. So I have the Fulbright thing coming up and keeps me busy. Keeps me well, busy. The, the knowledge that you and Jeannie and, of course, other editors have, I think it was so uh, – what you were describing is what I experienced – I, at times, over the course of my academic career, have felt mentor-less, mm. rudder-less and, and how to navigate that world. And, you know, obviously building relationships and attending conferences, it, it, it's, it's kind of an identity shift and it's a process, but it's, it's real. So, so the two of you digitizing your content, whether that's through the podcast or helping others understand the space, it's invaluable. Yeah. It just really is because I, I mean, you're right. It's, it's people's identities and, and sometimes they can't separate it and they feel like they've been rejected and, yes. and, and not the manuscript. And, but it's, it's a complex space to navigate at times. And I just have great respect. Oh, well, thankful. thank you. And, and thankful for the mentorship that you've provided me. Right. Well, you are you are we, no stranger. <laughs> you are no stranger to that publication process. And you know, again, when I get a great idea like you had with your well, your article that you ultimately yeah. got published, you know, we started having that conversation at the conference. Yeah. Yeah. And um able to see that through to publication. And what makes that work is it's a great topic, and you as an author can hear and integrate other ideas while staying focused on what you want to contribute. And you had a very focused contribution and that's when it works well. Yeah. And well, that's when but, it works but I well. I will yeah. forever be thankful because after that session, I think it was you that said this would be an interesting publication and, and that's what sparked for me. And so yeah. I'm forever thankful for that. I oh, really am. Makes it easy. It's yep. again, my happy place. I love, I could talk to authors all day long about their work. It's really it's a privilege to do, to see that spark yep. and, and help people get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kathy, thank you for all that you do. And uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I know our listeners will have loved it as well. I'll put all the resources that you mentioned into the show notes so people can check those out and okay. be well, 
Be well. You, take care. You as well. It's uh, it's high velocity out there, and um, we're not going to turn the corner very soon. So stay well, and thank you. I, you know, when I saw your name in my inbox, it's delightful. <laughs> it's it's really fun. So thank you. Okay. Be well. Bye bye. Thanks. You too. A lot of wisdom was shared in that episode with Dr. Kathy Lundeen. Uh, There's just so much wisdom there, and there's going to be some things that stand with me, stick with me for years to come, because like many of you listening, I publish as well. So this whole concept of merging into traffic, I just loved that. I mean, it's I had to name the episode that because it's just brilliant. And it's true. You're kind of entering into this space And do you have an awareness of that space? And I just love that analogy of of merging into traffic. And then another major piece of this is, are you open to feedback? And are you engaging this in this work as a partner and open to that feedback and working with your, she said that it was having a conversation with reviewers. And of course, she highlighted some just wonderful opportunities for scholars to think about as they look to the future. Uh, What excites her as ripe areas for exploration in research? Everybody, have a wonderful day. Take care. Be well. And as always, thanks for tuning in. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.